Americanized by Sarah Sadie. Chapter 1. A brief but juicy history of my birthplace and my birth. I swear on my autographed copy of Ethan Hawke's debut novel that this chapter will not be dull, so please don't skim or skip over it. If you won't take my word for it and have no vested interest in broadening your worldview, here's the most important takeaway. Iran is not pronounced Iran. It's pronounced Iran. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Tweet it. Shout it from the rooftops. Correct people. It'll make you sound smart and cultured. On behalf of my fellow Iranians, we thank you. Now for those juicy historical details you were promised. Real talk. Iran has dealt with its fair share of strife and political unrest. And while I'm not one to point fingers or lay blame, the United States and Britain were totally at fault. Okay, that's not entirely accurate. The West might not be directly accountable for all of Iran's drama, but they definitely stirred the pot back in the early 1950s. During that time, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh ruled Iran. Personally, I consider the man a hero. He was, democratically, he was a democratically elected leader and a progressive. But his main claim to fame was that he nationalized Iran's oil industry. Prior to Mossadegh, the country's most valuable resource was under British control. But why let the Brits, instead of Iran's, Iranians, profit off of Iran's most lucrative industry? That's the equivalent of Kanye West pocketing all the profits from 1989, the Taylor Swift album, not the year in history. Thus, Iran told the British oil companies to hit the road, and the Brits were predictably pissed. Mossadegh to Britain? Bye, Felicia. So Britain decided to call in a favor from their bestie, the United States. If texting had existed at the time, then Winston Churchill would have sent President Eisenhower a bunch of crying face emojis. According to Churchill, they needed to get rid of Mossadegh. The United States was initially reluctant to get involved, but Britain pointed out that Iran's beloved prime minister had newly gained the support of the Tudeh Party, an Iranian Communist Party, and the country would eventually go red. Oh, hell no, it wouldn't. Our man, Mossadegh, wasn't even a fan of socialism. Not to mention, the Tudeh Party frequently turned against him. So Eisenhower said, we're in. And that's when the CIA and Britain's Secret Intelligence Service decided to buddy up and formulate a secret coup to overthrow Mossadegh. They called it Operation Ajax, possibly named for the mytholo mythological Greek hero or the cleaning product. Your guess is as good as mine. It was decided that Iran's ruling monarch at the time, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, yes, Mohammed is like the Mike of Iran, would take over for Mossadegh. Initially, the Shah said, you people are nuts. Everyone loves Mossadegh. You're asking me to commit political suicide. But then the United States threatened to dismiss the Shah as well. And he was like, how soon do we get this overthrow party started? Long story short, the coup was a success. Mossadegh was jailed for three years and then placed under house arrest till his death in 1967. Kind of ironic that today the United States would really love more dem democratic countries in the Middle East, and Iran was one until the CIA got involved. J'excuse. 
The short-term wins for the United States and the United Kingdom included regaining limited access to Iran's oil by having a stake in a holding company called Iranian Oil Participants, or IOP. After the overthrow of Mossadegh, public opinion in Iran was so against the Brits taking total control of the country's oil supply again that IOP was the United Kingdom's next best option. Meanwhile, post-coup, the Shah and his family were living it up on diamond-studded thrones until everything went off the rails again in 1978. This time, the political unrest wasn't orchestrated by foreign powers. It was the people of Iran who were fed up with the monarchy, and they had good reason. For starters, the Pauli family, pa- family was ridiculously rich and shamelessly extravagant with their money. Iranians respected property gained wealth, but they objected to the Shah's fortune because much of it was stolen from the people which is why beyond the walls of the palace, the country's economy was in the crapper. Families struggled to put food on the table, while the royal family spent hundreds of millions of dollars on parties to celebrate the monarchy. Not to mention that the Shah had a secret police force called Savak, which had a reputation for torturing and executing anyone who opposed the monarchy. Side note, America and Israel helped establish SAVIC. In fact, the CIA helped train the officers, which means they played a significant role in the torture and murder of thousands of Shah detractors. But at this point, even the United States was over the Shah because, wait for it, he increased the price of oil. The overwhelming dislike for the Pavli dynasty gave birth to the Iranian Revolution, And by then, my parents were also fed up with the regime's inhuman tactics. My Baba, Ali, joined the protests, and eventually the Shah was exiled. Mostly everyone in Iran. Sweet! But with every revolution comes the risk that the new regime might suck worse than the old one. And some felt that happened when the Atollah Khomeini, the guy with the long beard and turban, imam accessories that many now associate with the stereotypes with t- like terrorism came into power. Keep in mind that Tehran of my parents' generation during the Shah's reg- reign was a burgeoning metropolis with European sensibilities. My mama walked the streets of her neighborhood in itty-bitty miniskirts with her long wavy brown hair blowing freely in the wind. During his bachelor days, My dad regularly had girlfriends he could take out in public. The consumption of alcohol was legal, and no one had to worry about the religious police arresting them for throwing a co-ed party. Tehran, the country's capital, was a vacation hotspot and a travel destination for many Westerners. Also, just so we're clear, my parents didn't travel around town on a camel. If you want to picture Tehran in your head, don't conjure up images of Agrabah, the fictional city in Aladdin. Think New York City. But when Khomeini came to power, he founded the Islamic Republic of Iran and introduced Islamic law to the country. Suddenly, there were strict dress codes for women that required them to cover up their hair. Men and women, unless they were married, were mostly segregated. Western music and movies were banned, and alcohol became illegal. For some, Khomeini was a total buzzkill. Of course, the new laws thrilled the country's religious citizens. 
but my mostly secular family wasn't having it. My mother had gray hair. It would have been a cardinal sin to cover up those luscious chestnut locks. That said, while the country was deprived of my mom's shampoo commercial quality tresses, there were also benefits to the Islamic Revolution. For instance, the literacy rate in Iran nearly tripled, up to 97% higher than the United States, because social conservatives were comfortable with sending their daughters to school, not that their classmates would also be wearing headscarves. One could argue that the revolution oppressed women, while others could argue it helped liberate them. Meanwhile, the Shah and his family, now in exile, were desperately looking for a country to take them in. President Carter reluctantly allowed them into the United States so the Shah could receive surgery for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But then all hell broke loose in Tehran. Iranians wanted the Shah returned to the country so he could be tried for war crimes. When the United States refused to send him back, a bunch of Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy and took 52 American hostages. See the Academy Award-winning movie Argo. As if a hostage crisis and an Iranian revolution weren't complicated enough, by 1980, the country also found itself at war with Iraq. The conflict was mostly geopolitical, with a long-standing border dispute between both nations. With the support of the United States, ahem, Iraq evaded Iran. At this point, the United States was politically motivated to get back Iraq in the war. After Iran's revolution, the new regime was pushing hostile propaganda against the West. Iran was also gaining allies in the Middle East, and the U.S. government worried about the country, worried the country would become the sole power in the region, thus wielding far too much influence. But guess what else happened in 1980? I was born. Yep, my life began during a hostage crisis, a revolution, and a war which is why I didn't get to enter the world on my own time. My mom's labor had to be induced to avoid any risk of me being born during a bombing raid. Despite the tumult of the times, I was a happy chubby baby who slept through the night and was loved by an extended family of full of aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandmas. Most of my childhood photos included images of Samira and me, rolling around on intricate Persian rugs without a care in the world. We had no idea that our birthplace was in chaos and that mullahs were now running the country. By 1982, with the hostage crisis finally over, but with no one in sight for the Iraq-Iran war on Khomeini's rule, my parents decided to peace out of the Middle East. They feared that Iran was never going to be the same again, and didn't want their children growing up without the freedoms they'd been afforded. There was only one problem. The borders were closed, and no one was permitted to leave Iran. But my parents decided to take any means necessary to get us safely out of the country and to the United States. They chose the United States because they had already lived there for a period of time, while my dad was in college. It also helped that my uncle had settled down in California and was willing to take us in. I suppose they had other options. They could have bided their time until the borders eventually reopened or gone through legal channels to get us green cards before we left Iran, but that would have likely taken years. With the country in upheaval, waiting would have meant putting their children's lives at risk, 
a gamble they weren't willing to take. Luckily, my dad had a friend with government ties that who could secure us passports and special permissions to leave the country for a grand total of $15,000. For my family, this was a small fortune. Only my mom, age 27, my sister, age 5, and me, age 2, would apply to leave the country since it was far more likely they'd grant us permission. If my dad were to have come along, the government would have assumed we were leaving our homeland for good. If he stayed behind in Iran, they figured my mom would eventually return to her husband. The plan was that my baba would eventually find a way to follow us to America once it was safe for him to leave. In the back of their minds, I know they hoped the unrest in Iran would settle down and we might be able to return to the country before our U.S. visitors' visas expired. Due to the perilous nature of our trip, we weren't allowed to inform family members we were leaving until the eve of our flight. I don't remember our departure, but I can only imagine what it was like for my grandmothers to hug and kiss their grandchildren farewell with no assurance that they'd ever see us again. My mom said goodbye to her husband of eight years and the love of her young life, neither of them wanting to acknowledge it could be months or years before they'd be reunited in America. Looking back on those, those stories I've heard from that time, I often wonder how my mama survived it at all. She left behind her home, her entire family, and her life partner in a war-torn country to give her children better opportunities. And even though she barely spoke English, she got us all to California by way of Paris and Zurich, where we spent weeks trying to secure a U.S. visitor's visa in one piece. She's basically the Persian Wonder Woman. Once we arrived in the States, we squatted at my Dai Meridad and Aunt Geneva's house in Saratoga, California. My sister and I tried to find common ground with our half-American cousins, but that took a while to pan out. It didn't help that we'd infiltrated their space and that my sister's favorite pastime was sending me off to bite them. I guess the rumors are true. Undocumented immigrants are violent and dangerous. The days without my dad were also seriously confusing for me as a two-year-old. My life was kind of like that children's book, Are You My Mother?, where the lost baby bird tries to find its mom. I developed a habit of pointing to male mannequins in shopping malls and asking them if they were my father. But three long months after we left Iran, my dad joined us in the Bay Area. The borders had reopened, and he left the country on a business trip to Italy. From there, he obtained the visitor's visas to the United States. But by the time my dad made it to America, I didn't recognize him. It would take weeks before I would agree to go near him. He says my sudden shyness was one of the most heartbreaking symptoms of being separated from us for so long. But at least we were back together, and our future in California was wide open. Once our visas expired, we applied for political asylum. But after two years without progress, we were told there was no record of our application. What followed was a series of messy, arduous, and complicated attempts at becoming U.S. citizens, and a lifetime of figuring out how to fit in and be cool without being a total traitor to my race. God bless capitalism. <laughs>